starting there in John chapter 10, verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and I will go in and, and, he, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word of the Lord. Be you may be seated. Last week, as we began John chapter 10, we saw in verses 1 through 5, that Jesus used an allegory, um, and he was speaking specifically to the Pharisees. That conversation continued on from John 9 and came over into, verse, uh, into chapter 10. And there Jesus described himself as the true shepherd who enters through the door and the true shepherd calls his sheep by name, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now, verse 6 tells us that those who were listening to him, primarily the Pharisees, and I'm sure some of the disciples maybe even as well, they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, we can't really get that. Of course, it should be obvious the meaning of this, right? But we forget that we grew up... In most of us, in Christian homes, we went to Sunday school and we heard the Sunday school lessons about Jesus being a shepherd. And I think even that, that little children's living Bible that we all had, I think there was even a picture of Jesus with a little sheep around his shoulder as he carried it. So Jesus being a shepherd is very um, familiar to us. But I guess in... Jesus' time, as he was talking to the Pharisees, that they really didn't catch what Jesus was saying, in spite of the fact we looked last week that all throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is seen as the shepherd of Israel. And so Jesus, um, rather than stopping and, and uh, changing the subject, they still didn't understand it, but Jesus doubles down with this allegory, and he changes some of the um, some of the points up a little bit. Rather than Jesus being the shepherd here, or implied in the first few chapters, now he's going to say he is the door, and that's going to be very important. Look in verse seven. So Jesus again said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door." of the sheep. Now this is the third I am sayings in John. If you're the sayings that he specifically starts with ego and me and this is the third one. Now we've seen the other two he said <clears throat> in chapter 6 I believe it was. He says I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger and whoever believes in me will never thirst. The next one he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Here he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will 
be saved. And then we'll see just the next verse down next week. He says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then he'll say a little later, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he will say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says, I am the true vine. Again, we remember that Jesus is using the name of Yahweh here, Egoimi. He is claiming here to be Yahweh in the flesh. He is claiming to be God. And so in these I am sayings, they are revealing not only who Jesus is, but they're revealing what he has come to do. So here in verse 7, he begins with that solemn formula, Amen, Amen, translated truly, truly. And this is to emphasize the importance of what he is getting ready to say. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. The Greek word for door is thora, which means door or gate or entrance, opening, doorway. So in this section, Jesus becomes the door. And he changes really the image. In verses 1 through 5, he's using the image of a sheepfold that is found inside a community, inside a town. And usually that was a very common place where the shepherds would come in and they would all mix their sheep together in one place in town. And of course that sheepfold was constructed a lot better and a lot nicer. But here Jesus is moving us out into the country. They too have sheep pens or sheep folds out in the country. It's a little more rustic than what's in town. And oftentimes there would be only one group of sheep in there. The, the shepherd would put his sheep in there at night to protect the sheep. And these were like holding pens. Again, they were made of stone, a little rougher construction. And um, I think this image is important because... Um, we kind of miss the connection because there's 2,000 years between us and we really didn't understand shepherding back then. But Kent Hughes tells the story of G. Campbell Morgan. Now, G. Campbell Morgan was one of the great <coughs> expositors of his time. And G. Campbell Morgan was taking a steamship that probably dates it, uh, taking a steamship across the Atlantic. And when he when they set sail, he realized that Sir George Adam Smith was one of the passengers on board, and, and Sir George Adam Smith was one of the most famous Old Testament scholars at the time. And so they had a great time talking all through their trip. And Morgan said that one of the stories that Sir George told him was about uh, meeting a shepherd as he traveled in the east. And uh, Sir George says that one day he was traveling and he came across a shepherd and his sheep and, and he started talking with them. The man showed him the, f uh, the fold into which the sheep were led at night, some of the crudely constructed sheepfold or pen that they would lead at night. And he said that it consisted of four walls 
And then Sir George said to him, uh, that is where they go at night. And the shepherd said, yes. And when they are in there, are they perfectly safe? Um, then he noticed, he said, but there's no door. You lead them in, but there's no door. There's no gate to, to shut. And the shepherd said, yes. And when they are in there, they are perfectly safe. And the shepherd says, I am the door. Now, Sir George said this man wasn't a Christian, and he was not speaking the language of the New Testament. He was speaking about how the Arabs shepherd their sheep and how they put them into the sheepfold. And what he means by being the door, he says, when the light has gone, when the sun sets, all the sheep are inside. I lie in the open space, and no sheep ever goes out but across my body, and no wolf comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door, the shepherd said. This is the very image that Jesus is giving us here. Jesus is the door. He lays across. No one can go in, no one can go out unless they cross through Jesus. So if we pay close attention to the details here, um, we'll discover that the metaphor of the sheepfold in town that he uses in verses 1 through 5, where all the sheep are mixed together, and then the one shepherd goes and calls, and that those sheep come out, and the remainder of the sheep stay in town. That is a metaphor. That is not a metaphor for heaven. It is a metaphor for Israel, that the sheepfold, where all the sheep are all mixed together, is a metaphor. It represents Israel. And the thieves and robbers are the Pharisees and the religious leaders that are leading Israel astray. And just as the shepherd of Israel is leading his true sheep out, um, then that means that he is leading them away from the false sheep and the false shepherd. In verse 3 of chapter 10, it says, To him the gatekeeper opens... The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He's leading them out away from the thieves and the robbers, from the other sheep that are not his sheep. So not only is Jesus leading the true sheep out of Israel from the false teachers and false shepherds, Jesus tells us that he's also going to go after other sheep that are not a part of Israel in John chapter 10, verse 16, just below there, Jesus says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, Jesus is not prophesying something about Mormonism. I don't know if you used to hear the old commercials of Mormonism. They used to quote this verse as proof that Jesus was thinking about Joseph Smith, or at least the Indians, and then Joseph Smith finding uh, the, the golden tablet and all that. But Jesus is not prophesying here about Mormonism. Clearly, within the context of this verse and the context of the rest of Scripture, even in the chapter, even in the, in the, uh, the book of Acts, Jesus is anticipating bringing the Gentiles 
in, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles into his flock, into his fold. But what we need to understand in this particular section is that Jesus is clearly talking about salvation here, about being saved. He is telling us here how a person is to be saved. The only way to be saved is by going through the door. And Jesus says, I am the door. In other words, Jesus is the only entrance to salvation. He is the only way to be saved. He is the only door. Now, we live in a time of pluralism, don't we? Um, Very much like ancient Greece and Rome. And pluralism is the idea that there are many religions or many gods, and anyone can just pick whatever god they want to follow, and no matter what religion or god is picked, or even if you choose not to serve or follow any god, no matter what happens, it will all lead you to the same place, right? Um, In a pluralistic society, the really one of the biggest sins that a person can commit is to make the claim that their religion is the only way to salvation. Now, back in Jesus' time and in the early church, the Romans really didn't care about the church worshiping Jesus as a god. But the moment they understood that Christians were claiming that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, that is, he is Lord even over Caesar, and even Caesar will bow the knee to Jesus, when they understood that they were claiming that Jesus is the only way, that Christianity is exclusive and no one is saved, goes to heaven, comes to the Father, except through Jesus, when Rome understood that, then Christianity could no longer be tolerated. And that's the persecution. Now today, as Christians proclaim the exclusivity of Christ, we are called arrogant. (laughs) That is so arrogant to claim Jesus is the only way, that's what they say. It's mean-spirited, you're bigoted. It's the height of intolerance to claim that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But in response to this idea, N.T. Wright writes this, It is an interesting observation on today's religious climate that many people now get every bit as steamed up about isn't Uh, insisting that all religions are just the same as the older dogmaticians did about insisting on a particular formulation and and interpretations. The dogma that all dogmas are wrong, the monolithic insistence that all monolithic systems are to be rejected has taken hold of the popular imagination at a level far beyond rational or logical discourse. Just think about this. Jesus claims to be the truth, the way, the truth, and life. He claims to be the truth. And truth, if you have not noticed, by its very nature is exclusive, isn't it? 
it excludes things. And we need to understand that. So when we find something that is true, it will be exclusive. Now, I think the problem in our society is that they've, they, they operate with the idea that uh, we walk around in our physical life with the scientific truth and, and, and certainty and everything must be tested by science. But when it comes to religion or religious beliefs, that's more based upon feeling. You really can't apply truth to feelings in the mind of our population. Well, that's wrong-headed. Jesus is the truth. And because he is the truth, he excludes all others who claim to be a way or um, who claims that salvation can be found in them or can be a way to find whatever the end is, nirvana or which is perfect nothingness or something else, right? So, um, so Jesus claims to be the only way of salvation, and we proclaim that Jesus is the only way of salvation because Jesus claimed it, right? If Jesus didn't claim it, we wouldn't have a right to claim it. But Jesus made it very clear that he is the door. He is the only door. He's the only way to the Father. And because of that, Jesus is the only way that a person can be saved. Now, we see this again, John 14, 6, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And if our Lord claimed to be the only way of salvation, then Christians have no right to soften that claim or to make our message more tolerable to the world, such as the Emergent Church and those like Brian McLaren, who suggests that you can go on being a Buddhist follower of Christ. You see, that is just caving into the spirit of this age. Jesus would not have that. So it's not arrogant to say about Jesus what Jesus said about himself. It would actually be the height of arrogance if we changed what Jesus said, thinking that we know better than Jesus. So Jesus is the door. And how do we enter through the door? Well, the Gospel of John makes it very clear how we enter through the door. It's illustrated in the story of the blind man in chapter 9, right? Jesus comes to the blind man and says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Believe. Faith. Do you believe? John told us in John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we go to or through the door of salvation. We come to Christ by faith, as the blind man says, Lord, I believe. Now, this corresponds to the very reason why John wrote his gospel, right? We've mentioned this several times as we've come through the gospel of John. But in John 20, 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so the way that we were saved, the way we come to Jesus as the door of salvation, we come to him by faith, by believing in him, by trusting in him.
Now in verse 8, Jesus speaks about the thieves and the robbers again. He says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So anyone who does not go through the door are thieves and robbers. Now this is particularly true of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Of course, he was probably referring to them in this, but it also includes all the religious leaders and pretenders in our day, right? It would include Buddha, right? Buddha, whatever you think about him, he would be a thief and a robber. Buddha is not leading people toward Christ. In fact, he's leading them away from Christ. Muhammad, the same way. Jesus is just a prophet, Muhammad says. Muhammad being a greater prophet, right? He's a thief. He's a liar. Joseph Smith, Mary, Eddie, or Mary Baker Eddy from the Church of Christian Science, which is neither Christian nor science, right? Charles Taz Russell, founder of the New Aryan Church, Jehovah's Witness. Jim Jones, David Koresh, all them would be robbers and thieves because they were leading people away from Christ and away from the truth of the gospel. The good news is, is that Jesus said that his true sheep, the sheep do not listen to them. They may be confused. They may be for a little time led astray, but ultimately they will not completely follow them. They do not listen to them. The true sheep will follow the shepherd, which brings us to verse 9. Again, he helps us to understand what he means by he is the door in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You see, this is all about salvation, how a person is saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. He will go in and out. Do you see that? So clearly Jesus being the door is the claim that only through Christ can a person be saved. He is the door of salvation. He says, if anyone enters by me, right? If anyone, again, is a call, a general call. If anyone, everyone, whoever, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And if anyone comes to Christ, that's the promise here is salvation. Saved from what? It reminds me of a bumper sticker that you used to see a lot in the 70s when it said, Jesus is the answer. And then somebody else came out with a bumper and said, what is the question, right? Jesus is the answer, but well, what's the question? Saved, saved from what? We talk about salvation and come to Christ and be saved. What are we saved from? Well, clearly we're saved from false shepherds telling us lies and not telling us the truth. But we are saved from our sins. We are saved from the wrath of God. 
we are saved from eternal death. And in a term that you very rarely hear nowadays from the pulpit, we are saved from hell, the eternal fire of God's judgment. That's what we're saved from. And so the only way to be saved from God's wrath, from our sin, from death, from hell, is by coming to Christ. He is the door. Now, a good biblical illustration of entering through the door, really, it's clearly, it's Noah's Ark, right? Noah's Ark is a great illustration of what Jesus is saying here. God commanded Noah to build an ark because he was going to judge the whole world, right? He was going to bring judgment. Now, Noah trusted God, and he built an ark. It took him a long time to build it. And when the rains began to fall, Noah and his family entered the ark through the door. And the Lord shut the door, and they were saved from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God. Now Peter tells us that Noah's flood is a reminder to all of us, to all of humanity, that there is another day of judgment coming to the whole world. In fact, I always think about that, what Peter says, that the world knows that the earth was flooded. Every time you pick up a fossil, how are fossils formed? Fossils have to be formed in mud. Every time you pick up a fossil, it is a testimony of God's judgment through a flood, through water. And it's a testimony that God is going to judge the world again. Not through water this time, Peter says, but through fire. And so the judgment is coming. Christ is coming again. The judgment of God is coming. And the only way to be saved is to enter through the door and be shut up in the ark. And the ark is Christ. To be saved from the wrath and judgment of God. Now notice what else Jesus says in verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastor. Now, isn't that interesting? Go in and out. Notice that. If we enter through Christ, we will not go into a confining sheep pen and be locked up forever. It's not like we're going into a prison. I think a lot of people think that that may be what heaven is, going into a prison and being held forever or something like that. But if we go through the door in Christ, we can not only go in for our own protection, but we can go out. We can go out and find pasture. To be a follower of Christ means it, it's not confining. We are not prisoners. To be a Christian is to not, not be restricted to be a Christian is to be liberated. You can go in and you can go out. One secular writer said this, Man must learn to live without ideologies, religious, political, or otherwise. When the mind is not tethered to any ideology, 
It is free to move to new understandings. And in that freedom flowers all that is good and all that is beautiful. It is true freedom. And I like to add, said the devil. That's almost the exact promise that Satan made to Adam and Eve or to Eve in the garden, wasn't it? To be a follower of God is too restrictive. You can be your own God. Don't be committed to one ideology. Open yourself up to true freedom. True goodness. True beauty. The world and the devil promises true freedom if you would cast off all restraints, all moral restraints, all religious restraints. If you would just walk away from God, you will experience true freedom in doing whatever you want to do. And the promise even here is that this is the source, this is the way to true goodness and beauty, and all that can be found independently of God. Again, that's the lie. Keeping an open mind and never closing it on truth is a source of bondage, not freedom. G.K. Chesterton said, Merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth it is to shut it again on something solid. So all that is free, good, and beautiful is found in Christ. It can never be found away from Christ. In fact, what people will find out in the end if they believe that true freedom is away from God and away from Christ, they'll find out in the end that they were not only lied to, but they are, will be in bondage and in judgment for the rest of their lives. But in Christ is true freedom. You go in and you can go out. And you can find pastor. In John 8.36, it says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Right? There is where true freedom is. That's the source of freedom. And do you realize that as this nation goes away from God and His Christ, we have less and less freedom? That's not a mistake. Freedom is found in Christ And when we are in Christ, we are set free from the bondage of sin and death. And we are free to go in and out and to enjoy the earth and the world that God has made. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's. But Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, He writes, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then he says, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Christians are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs. What does that mean? That means that we inherit What do we inherit? All that is God's. Well, we just read in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's. That means that in Christ, we inherit all things. We inherit 
the earth we inherit, the world. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We will inherit the earth, and all of its, all of its abundant resources are ours. All of the gold and silver and platinum and food and every, everything is ours because everything is the Lord's and we are his heirs. Why is that important? Just think of how many governments and corporations today desire to take over the world. Right? Really, to control the earth's, earth's precious resources. To control the oil, control the gold, to control the uranium. How many corporations and governments are vying for that, to take over all the resources? And as we look at it today, it appears that the liars and cheaters and the immoral people are prospering and they are gaining control. The rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. That's not by mistake because they've rigged the game. But in the end, when all the dust settles, the earth will not be owned by any government or any international corporation. The earth, with all of its beauty and precious resources, will be given to God's people to enjoy forever. It's ours. Every bit of it. The holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven to the earth, and the Lord will make his dwelling among men to the, on the earth, and that will be the eternal headquarters of the kingdom of God on the earth. He will walk among us. That means that we will walk with God on the earth in perfect fellowship with him forever. You may ask, what, what will heaven be like? Well, what is it like right now? Except for it will be made new, and it will probably, according to C.S. Lewis and others, it probably will be a little more solid then than it, than it is now. But we are made from the dust of the earth, and we are forever tied to this earth, and we will walk with God on this earth, and we will enjoy this earth and its precious resources and its beauty forever and ever. That image of people dying and going to heaven and playing harps on clouds, that doesn't come from the scripture. That doesn't come from the scripture. We will live under God's blessing forever. Psalm 16:11 says, "You make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy." And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures. Salvation in Christ is not restrictive. God is not some cosmic killjoy trying to keep us from having fun, right? In His presence there will be pleasures forevermore. Meaning He is the the source of true freedom, true goodness, true beauty. And the world thinks that, that pleasure can only be found in sin. It can only be found in rebellion against God. That's the lie. That's the lie that Satan 
tells over and over again. But true joy and happiness and true pleasure only comes from Christ. You can, you can see the difference, especially when you study the Puritans. I hate the fact that we have to go all the way back to the Puritans for good examples of this, but many people think that the Puritans were joyless, right? When you think puritanical, you think, oh, straight lace and you know, joyless, or like H.L. Uh, Machen defined Puritanism as the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy, you know. But C.S. Lewis wrote about the Puritans, and he said this, whatever they were, they were not sour, gloomy, or severe, nor did their enemies bring any such charge against them. For Thomas More, a Protestant, one uh, was one, drunk on the the new must, a lewd lightness of mind and vain gladness of heart. And then Lewis says, Protestantism was not what Protestantism was um, not too grim, but too glad to be true. <laughs> These people were so joyful and so happy that Protestantism was seen not as too grim, but almost too glad to be true. And this is the kind of joy that should come to every heart that comes to Christ as the door of salvation. Now concerning this abundance, this pleasures forevermore, Jesus said in verse 10, he contrasts what the world and the devil give to what Christians have in Christ in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, Satan may promise you pleasures and happiness, but he only steals, kills, and destroys. And then Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see that? That's connected to they can go in and out and find pasture. And he said, the, 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 the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give abundant life, abundant life to my sheep, my people. So the thieves are those who climb up over the wall, right? And when the thief goes into the sheep pen over the wall, he can't just grab a sheep and run out. He'll run into the gatekeeper, right? Or if he's out in the field, he'll run into the shepherd. So what thieves did back in those days was they may climb over the wall while the shepherd was sleeping or not paying attention. They would climb over the wall like the robbers and thieves would do. And then they would go and, and most often would, would take a knife and slit the throat of the sheep. And sheep are pretty dumb, so none of them... All the rest of them just sit there and just hang out, not even realizing that they're in danger. The sheep bleeds out, and the, and the robber takes the sheep, and maybe he has help, maybe, but somehow he gets the sheep back over the wall, and then the robber will take that sheep and shear it and sell the, uh, the wool and probably chop the sheep up and use it for food. So that's why the thief, Jesus says, comes to steal to kill and destroy. That's what thieves do. Now, the religious leaders, as Jesus was talking about thieves, he was describing these religious leaders, and they did not have um, Israel in their best interests. They were destroying the people. 
And you remember what Jesus said of them, you are of your father, the devil. So where did they learn to kill, steal, and destroy? They learned it from Satan, the original thief and liar. And what does Satan do? Well, look around you. even Even in this town, he's promising people a good time through drugs, right? Hey, just have a great time. You can smoke this joint or smoke this crack. You're going to have a great time. It's going to be wonderful. You're free. You don't have to worry about God. or Just have a, have a good time. But then after a while, it doesn't take too long, and you can see them running around all over town, people whose minds are completely blown. Satan promised them freedom and pleasure and All they got was bondage and death. Go around, ask them. Ask those burnout people around town, are you happy? No. They were promised one thing and given another. Satan tells people that they can sin without any judgment. You know? You can be happy. You can be free. But in the end, he only delivers bondage and death. Because he steals, he kills, he destroys. That's what he does. And people fall for it every day. They fall for that lie. But by contrast with the thief, Jesus says here, I came, of course, to die on the cross for the sins, right? But to, to be a savior. But ultimately, after he dies, after he's saved, after he's raised from the get dead, he said, I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Abundant life. Not just life, but over the top abundance. I came to save them from death so they may, so they may live. Not, not just a meager existence, but to live in God's eternal abundance. Now, this abundant life is not just what you hear on TV, the health wealth gospel. It's not, it's, it's not that. This is a life of abundant joy, of contentment. A life full of goodness and love and beauty. And an ever-increasing capacity to enjoy it. If someone thinks that heaven will be boring, they have no idea what it is. No clue. In his right hand there are pleasures forevermore so here's the choice right here's the choice either enter into eternal life under God's abundant blessing by going through the door this is what Jesus is offering right I am the door if anyone enters by me will be saved and what is he offering eternal life abundant life and he is offering that to anyone who comes to him 
And this, is, this, this happens by believing the gospel, right? Trusting in the gospel that the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. By believing the gospel and trusting in him, our sins are forgiven. The other choice is to remain as you are, to be led astray by the world and the devil, to hear promise after promise of your pleasure and enjoyment and only in the end be in bondage and face the judgment and wrath of God forever. True abundance, true freedom, true love, goodness, and beauty is found only in Christ, the door, the true shepherd of Israel. And that's what Jesus is saying to those people, to the Pharisees and to his followers of the day. And John wrote these down, wrote this down for us. He wrote it down for you so that you would not be in the dark. He wrote it down for you so that you would believe in Jesus, trust in Christ, the only way of salvation.